Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 66. You know, the first time I went to a Sovereign Grace church was in 1997. Now, some of you are thinking, I cannot believe he's that old. I know. Some of you weren't born then. I know that as well. The first time I went to a Sovereign Grace church, I was, I was blown away by what I encountered. Because what I saw very quickly were gospel was a gospel culture and gospel distinctives that were super attractive to me. Quite clearly, there was a culture in this local church that I went along to of humility and godliness and gratefulness. I've never been thanked for coming so much in my life, ever. You know, usually you just, no one notices you're there. But this church was embracing you and wanted to be, show you that you are great. They were grateful for your, your very presence. And they were humble. They weren't like just talking about themselves all the time. They often wanted to know about you. And as you finish the conversations, you realize, I didn't learn anything about them. But they're humble people because they wanted to engage on that level. This church was also had a distinctive of service and generosity and fellowship. They were a family, and it was palpable, and it was obvious, and it was incredibly attractive. And they were joyful. It was just a happy place. It was clear that this church didn't just have like a vibe thing going on. It was a genuine joy in the Lord that as they spent time together was so attractive. This local church that I went to in 1997 was so attractive to me because it really displayed the splendor and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I saw reading about in the New Testament, I saw displayed in this church, and it was so attractive. And what became apparent after the late 90s is as I went into different Sovereign Grace churches, they were all the same. (laughs) They all had these distinctives. They all had this gospel culture. And for the last 39 years in Sovereign Grace churches, it doesn't matter whether you're in India or Indianapolis, they're actually the same. The values and culture of humility and godliness and gratefulness and service and generosity and fellowship and joy. They're all the cultural markers and values in every country of the world under the banner of Sovereign Grace Churches. They come from a gospel DNA. Churches that are passionate about knowing, applying and proclaiming the gospel. But that actually looks like something. And what it looks like is this culture that we treasure in Sovereign Grace Churches for the last 39 years, which is how old our family of churches is. This culture has been valued. And for the last 10 years here in Australia, this culture has been valued. First of all in Wurunga and now in Parramatta as well. And today I want to look then at this very first part of the puzzle. The first part is always the most important part. And it's the cultural value of humility. When a church is humble, they will get all the other things anyway because they all come through it. And so today we're going to be looking at what it means to be a humble church. And we're going to be looking at just two verses in Isaiah chapter 66. Two verses that I think are life-changing. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble 
and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Lord, we could be anywhere in the world right now and you would be fully present. Lord, I thank you that as we sing as brothers and sisters, we are reminded of all that you've done for us. And we are reminded that we stand together as a local church for your glory. Lord, I thank you that our worship didn't stop the moment we stopped singing. And now continues as we tremble at your word. Lord, as we now listen in response to singing, to your word being preached, as we now listen to your voice being heard above our own, Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do this morning? Open the eyes of our heart that we may behold the glory of the Lord and our lives may be changed as a result. In Jesus' name. You know, the Israelites being addressed by God here in Isaiah chapter 66 had so much. They had a unique identity as the people of God. They had the Torah. They had the law of God. They had this incredible covenant. They had a temple. But humility, they did not have. And so God, in his grace and mercy, he draws their attention here away away from their prideful assumption of God's chosen people and away from their preoccupation with the many trappings of religion that they found themselves in. And instead sits them down and describes for them the one to whom I will look. And what we discover is the one to whom he will look It's not based upon their religion. It's not based on the color of their skin. It's not based on their gifting. It's not based on how incredible they are. None of those things. The one to whom he will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. See, humility is such a wonderful prize and treasure before the Lord. Humility is the very thing that actually drives a contriteness of heart and drives a trembling at the word of God. And so I so thank God for this text. At this moment, he got the Israelites' attention. He got them to turn away from all the things they were taking pride in and help them to understand who it is that he actually looks at with a favor and a grace and a special blessing. And he highlights for them the importance of humility. And what I so love about this text is it isn't just like a piece of history for us, is it? It's not just like we read this and then go, that's really interesting what happened three and a half thousand years ago. We get to understand that this is still the way God works today. This is still what he looks for today as his eyes go to and fro across the world. What he is looking for with special attention is humility. And so this distinction comes with such a wonderful prize. And so I have three points this morning to help us get our head around this text. Number one, the perils of pride. I want us to look at the antithesis of humility, that we may understand the way this all works. Number two, then we're going to look at the prize of humility, what it really looks like, what God is actually promising us here by his grace and for his glory. And then number three, purposeful application. I don't want to leave you stranded 
really wanting humility and then having no idea how to actually pursue it. And so that's where we'll finish. But my hope is simple. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, we may all be positioning ourselves to be the one to whom he will look. That's what I want for us. Number one then, the perils of pride. The Israelite church had so much going for them, but humility they did not have. They were proud. And it would appear that pride, as biblically defined, has quite the history. See, pride, according to the Bible, precedes even Adam and Eve. Pride was the very first sin displayed in the universe. It was not primarily through Adam and Eve. It was actually through Satan himself. In Isaiah chapter 14, we are informed of Satan's rebellion against God and more specifically, his motivation for it. And so Isaiah 14 verse 13, it says this. It says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. That was the motivation of Satan himself. He wanted to contend with God. And so led by Satan himself, a whole group of powerful angelic creatures possessing a beauty and a splendor far bigger than anything we could ever ask or imagine, rebelled against the Lord in arrogance and desiring recognition and status equal only to God himself. They completely rebelled against God. And as a result, God judged them and dealt swiftly and harshly with them, and they were removed from his presence for all eternity. Pride appears to be the very first sin that ever took place in the universe, and pride ever since appears to be the essence of all sin. John Stott says it this way. He says, pride is more than just the first of the seven deadly sins. It is in itself the essence of all sin. I cannot improve upon that. It's so true. Sin isn't just one of the many sins. When you think about it, it's that which drives all the other sins as well. And pride, my friends, appears to be the most serious of sin. When we say amongst ourselves, oh, I'm just a bit proud, we should be taking a massive breath when we say that. Pride, as biblically defined, is profoundly serious before the Lord. See, don't get me wrong, God hates all sin. He righteously stands in opposition to all sin. But I sincerely believe that biblical evidence abounds that pride is the most serious of them all. And God hates pride more than anything else. For example, in Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, when, the Lord when his word reveals all that the Lord hates and that there are abomination to him, it is pride that is numbered at its first. And we read, it is the proud man's haughty eyes that therefore heads up the list. In Proverbs 8 verse 13, we read, I hate pride and arrogance. We hate a load of things in our lives, don't we? We hate the Sydney traffic. I hate vegetables. We have a serious list. We have a funny list. But God just cut straight to the chase. I hate pride. Proverbs 16 verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination. 
be assured he will not go unpunished. My friend, stronger language for sin simply cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. God hates pride. Why is that? Why does God hate pride so passionately? Well, Charles Bridges says it this way. He says, pride is contending with God for his supremacy. No wonder he hates it then so much. Pride is contending with God for his supremacy. It's not willing then to put God at the center of our lives and worship him as Lord and Master and King. It is standing alongside him and contending for his supremacy. Acting as if he doesn't even exist. And then being irritated with him when things go wrong in the world because allegedly he should be making everything utopia. Pride is contending with God for his glory. It is, in effect, robbing God of what he rightfully owns and the glory that belongs only to him. And my friends, the challenge that we have, all of us, it is the very air we breathe in the world today, is it not? People that set themselves up alongside God. I want nothing to do with him. I'm going for it myself. I'm self-sufficient, I'm independent, I can do my thing, I don't need him. And then when COVID comes, or things that happen that are bad in the, in the world, people look on a touch of God and think, well, he clearly doesn't care. If God existed, he would do more than this. People are obsessed with themselves. Boasting and promoting and ostentation is the very air that we breathe. Is it not? Look on Facebook if you want to check. Promotion, ostentation, everybody is their own PR manager. And what everybody does is they contend with God for his glory, uncontent that he alone will be worshipped. We want to be worshipped. We want to be liked. We want to be thanked. Sadly, pride is in the very air that we breathe to this day. And sadly, given the harsh reality of indwelling sin, Pride is still something that we struggle with as Christians as well, isn't it? So, for example, self-glorification, which is what pride is. So, boasting and promoting and wanting people to see you. It's pride. It's often not where we start, is it? As Christians, we want to draw attention to Jesus, don't we? We want to be like John the Baptist, understanding I must decrease, he must increase. We want to give our lives to pointing to Jesus. But the challenge is, given the nature of indwelling sin, this hand that points at Jesus tends to come around and start pointing at us. And people, well, what about me? And we get better at sort of handling our sin, I think, as we get older and more mature. So we don't usually join a church and say, nice to meet you, can I give you my CV? I'm very good at many things. I'll probably be singing week two. In fact, I'm actually called to pastoral ministry. So maybe third weekend, I can have a go. We don't usually speak like that. Some people do. It's ridiculous. But most people do not. And yet we can still spot pride. Here's how we can spot pride. We can spot pride not just by what we do say, but by what we feel when things don't work out the way we thought. So when we're not picked for a certain team, when we're not involved in something that I think I should have been involved in, when we're not asked to serve in a certain way or do a certain thing that we thought we should have because we're really good at it, or when we're not thanked for something. And so you start to go home and you're like, they never thanked me. 
Everybody else is thanked every week. They never thank me. Everybody else is asked to serve on these teams. Not me. No, no. Everybody else in the world is asked to be a life group leader, but never me. No. What's that about? What's going on there? The hand has gone from all just wanting to point to Jesus and serve in whatever capacity I can to what about me? What about people seeing my gifts, my abilities? What about people thanking me? Self-glorification. Uncontent to see God worshipped as King of Kings. We want to stand right by him. I want people to notice me, see me, see me. And then the self-sufficiency. That's pride too. Independence and autonomy. Quite simply an attitude of, I've got this. I'm okay. If God dies tomorrow, no problem. I'm on this. What is that? And for many of us, we don't, we don't actually go through our lives thinking, I've got this per se, do we? But sometimes when you look at how much time we spend reading the Bible and praying, our lives scream, I've got this. I don't need you. Jesus got up every morning and spent time with the Father. And yet sometimes we get up every morning and don't even think about that because we've got other things we want to do, other things we've got to do. What is that? Self-sufficient. I'll be okay. Jesus himself says, you can do nothing apart from me. And yet sometimes we get up in the morning and pretend that, yes, I can, thanks. What is that? Only God can stand truly independent, yet we so often stand alongside him and say, I'm independent too. I've got this. Self-glorification and self-sufficiency, they are not just in the world, are they? They are in our hearts as well. And pride, my friends, could not be more serious because God hates pride. And God opposes pride. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says that God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud, opposes. That opposition is the inevitable and constant opposition of God. It is coming. He disciplines those he loves. But that does not mean discipline is fun. He opposes the proud. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How many stars, how many celebrities do we see falling on a weekly, if not daily basis? Why? Because they're proud. I don't need you. I've got this. Look at them. They're all worshiping me. Well, pride, my friend, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The fruit of pride is the consistent, inevitable opposition of God. My friends, the warnings of Scripture about pride could not be any more serious and sobering, could they? But if we pay attention, they could also not be any more loving and merciful. Because what God is doing here is he's saying, listen, I love you. Don't do this. Don't go along that path. Don't contend with me for supremacy. But come along this path. There's a different path for you now as my, as my people. John Stott wonderfully says it this way. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I love that. As Christians, 
Pride is your greatest enemy because God will oppose you in your pride. But humility, that's your greatest friend. And that takes us to point two, the prize of humility. What is the prize? Well, Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look. What a prize. It is an astounding and astonishing and amazing prize. See, the eyes of God are a theme that run throughout the entire Bible. So, for example, in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, We read, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I love that. Now, just to be clear, the Lord doesn't actually have physical eyes. Okay, so if you're sitting there wondering, how, what his face looks like? Okay, he hasn't got a face either. The Lord is omniscient. He's all-seeing in every way. But to get our attention at different times in the Bible, he, he acts as if he does have physical eyes to help us understand and get us on board with what the heck is going on here. And as he gets our attention, he helps us see where his eyes then truly go. What is it that gathers his gaze on it? What is it that works like a magnet to the gaze of God? And the answer is his humility. Nothing ever escapes the notice of the Lord. He's wonderfully aware of all things at all times, but there is one thing that draws his gaze. Humility. You see, there's no doubt that humility gives us the special attention of God. And that attention is an active attention, okay? When this is written, it's not like, okay, so what you're saying is, if I be humble, God will look at me and go, good one. No, that's not what it is. His active gaze is his assistance and favor and grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When he says that this is the one to whom I will look, he's saying this is the one to whom I will look with assistance and favor and grace. This is the one who I will run after in all my might to help and aid. What a price. What a promise. And what gains us that promise and that prize is humility. Oh my, what a treasure humility is. So what is humility? Well, C.J. Mahaney, I think, describes it the best in his book entitled Humility. He says this about humility. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness and then living in light of what we see. Let me say that again. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, and then living in light of what we see. I think that's brilliant. Humility, then, is honestly assessing ourselves and in light of God's holiness, in light of who He is. I mean, the Lord is above and beyond us in every way, is He not? He is the creator and sustainer and object of all things. He alone is the one that can spin the galaxies. 
He alone is the one who marks off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. He alone is the one that can hold all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. He, is, he alone is the one who creates the stars and numbers the stars and sustains the stars so that no one is missing. He is the one who is sustaining your lung system and your heart in this moment, which is why you're still breathing. None of us are concentrating in this moment on keeping our hearts going. Feel helpless? It's because we are. It's the Lord that holds it and keeps it going. From life's first cry to final breath, he is the one who commands our destiny. Humility begins by gazing at the Lord in his majesty and sovereignty and greatness and realizing you are massive and I am not. And then it is honestly assessing ourselves in light of our sinfulness. The reality then, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus is our only boast, is he not? He's our only boast. You're not sitting here worshiping the king because you're like, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. It was just my culture. I grew up in a church and yeah, pretty, pretty good really. And I actually have quite a few gifts. <laughs> I have quite a few gifts that I can understand why he chose me. No! You are here because he came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. You were running away from him in arrogance, in the futility of your mind. You were hostile to him, wanting nothing to do with him. You want to know how serious your sin is? Then gaze at Calvary. And behold the one who died in your place, given the seriousness of your sin. Your sin cost Jesus his life. That's why we sing and we say, Jesus is my only boast. I have nothing without you. Not to me, Lord, but to you. Bring glory to your name. Humility then is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And when we do that, and when we pay attention, what we will see is Jesus. He is the place where God's holiness and our sinfulness collide. And Jesus was the perfect example of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul even tells us that Jesus in his humility, even though he was God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. And instead gave his life to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the epitome of a picture of one who considered others more significant than himself. And so in joy, he laid his life down for other people, counting the significance of the Father and the significance of the world as more significant than himself. He gave us the perfect sacrifice that atoned for our sin, and he gave us at the same time an example of humility. See, as Philippians 2 tells us, humility looks like considering others more important than ourselves. Humility, then, is when the dad comes in from work and doesn't demand that everybody serve him because he's had a long day, but considering others more significant than himself, comes in and says, hey, how can I serve? I'm here now to serve you. It's the mum that could be doing a thousand and one different things with her life. But instead is looking after these babies that are just sort of there all the time. Even on weekends. Even on holidays. They come with you. 
But it's the mom that dies to herself and says, I know, but this is what I'm going to give my life to. Because I count them as more significant than myself. It's not about me. It's about them. It's the teenager that's had a long day at school or a long day at university or whatever it be. But doesn't come home then to be served. But to serve and to give their life away for other people. Considering them more significant than themselves. Or it's the single who is carrying the home by themselves, carrying the finances by themselves, carrying all the shopping and groceries by themselves, but is still not willing to just enclose their lives off into their own little world, but instead is using the rest of the time to serve other people, to build up the church, because they consider others more significant than themselves. Listen, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And then living in light of what we see. And it comes then with a prize. And that prize is the active gaze of the Lord. The active favor and grace of the Lord God himself. Who amongst us doesn't want that? I want that. Humility. Is as his eyes go to and from the world, it is your humility that will draw his gaze like a magnet. And so how do we get this? Which is my third and final point. Purposeful application. How do we actually put to death pride in our lives and pursue humility in our lives? You see, without purposeful application, you are not actually blessed. If I just press pause here and you go home, say, man, that was such a good sermon. I felt so blessed. Negative. You were not blessed. You just learned a few things. You learned about something you can do to understand the grace of God and experience the grace of God in a more increased way. But we still don't know how to really do it. There's always a risk in sermons that we can be like what James talks about in James chapter 1. We can be like the man who sees himself in the mirror and goes, oh, my goodness. I've got a few issues. And then goes away and makes no changes whatsoever. And James says, you know what, that man, he's not blessed at all. He's not blessed in his hearing. We're blessed in our doing. We're blessed when we see something and we go away and make some applications. That's what brings the blessing. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never read CJ's book on humility, I would purchase and read that book. It's the best book I've ever read on humility. I think it will serve you well. But even outside of that, I have three points of application for you this morning that I think if we pursue and do will help us to weaken pride in our life and pursue humility in your life. Here's the first. Number one, if you want to pursue humility, number one, do all you can to begin your day and finish your day with the Lord. Do all you can. It's the fight of faith. Do all you can to begin your day and finish your day with the Lord. I mean, for so many of us, our day begins with an alarm, does it not? Whether it be an alarm on our bedside cabinet or whether it be the sound of a small child crying, the alarm has erupted and the day begins. And the tyranny of the urgent quickly becomes a reality in our lives, isn't it? All the things we've got to get done. We start to see our day unfolding before our eyes and we wonder how we're going to fit it in. And yet what we can so quickly forget is our need for the Lord. We can crack on with our day, forget I need the Lord. 
One of the most amazing things to me about Jesus is the way, as I said before, he gets up early in the morning and all the disciples are like, where's he gone? Where's he gone? He's left us. And they're like, oh, hang on, no, he's outside. (laughs) Every day he seems to be outside. Doing what? Spending time with his father. If Jesus, as God incarnate, needed to spend time with the Lord, how much more do we need to spend time with the Lord? We so desperately need the Lord. My friends, don't be deceived into thinking you'll be fine, thinking you've got this. You have no idea what's coming today. How do you know if you've got it or not? You have no idea what waves may arrive. My friends, we need the Lord. We need him. Getting up and spending time with the Lord, it cultivates our affections for the Lord. It cultivates our understanding of who he really is. But it is also a wonderful process where we get to sit down and say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. A daily reminder of humility and the reality that apart from you, I got nothing. And then I want to encourage you to take the time to finish your day with the Lord as well. I mean, sleep and the gift of sleep, I submit to you, is a daily reminder of how pathetic we really are. It is. I was watching a a program this week. I'm not quite sure what it's called, but maybe like 24 hours or awake. I think it's called awake. I like this game show. And what they do is they keep these contestants awake for 24 hours, and now they play the game. They look like they're drunk. (laughs) You know, we have people in our church in Moronga that do night shifts all the time. And you're like, you see them, and you're like, whoa. Feel free not to come to group this week. I mean, this is just bad because they're just so tired. Whenever I get off a plane, if I haven't slept, it is not pretty. You don't want me around anybody. You certainly don't want me saying anything. It's dangerous. We are so not very good when we haven't slept, are we not? And yet the Lord, he neither slumbers nor sleeps ever. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all eternity, never needs a moment of sleep, perfectly capable all the time. We are not. Seize that moment before you go to sleep to remind yourself, Lord, this is a daily reminder of how I am not like you. That you are the creator and I am the creature totally dependent upon you. I need to sleep. You never do. Seize that moment to begin your day with the Lord and finish your day with the Lord, thanking him for what's taken place during the day, casting your burdens on him and seizing this moment to remind yourself that this very sleep is a reminder of just how humble I need to be before you. So start your day and finish your day with the Lord. Number two, take time to study the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and the cross. Take time to study the attributes of God, human sinfulness, and the cross. Now, the first point is a daily point. The second point is more to do with something you might want to do over the next two to three years. Consider it a project. Just spend time understanding who God really is and how sinful you really are and what the cross then really means. So first of all, the attributes of God. I mean, the attributes of God are wonderfully on show for us right here in this text, are they not? I mean, just listen to these words. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the one who spoke out the burning bush. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. I mean, you're just reminded as you read words like that, that he is truly massive, is he not? 
I mean, right now we are undergoing a global pandemic. One little bacteria or virus, whatever it be, that we can't even see has ruined the world. And we have the best minds across the world coming up with vaccines. What are we going to do? Quick, get everybody injected. Let's do all this. We're all in a panic. We're barely doing anything. No one's going anywhere. But that's the way we see the world, don't we? We see it from our perspective, right? We need all these scientists. And then you've got the scientists coming on. We've got this. We can beat this. And you think, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how we go. But everybody's doing that. And then we read this and we're reminded, oh, the earth that is massive for me is just a footstool for him. He's not panicked. He's like, hey, could you mind? Just let me rest my foot a second. <laughs> you know, the attributes of God give us that wonderful moment where it's like the movie scene zooms out and you realize, oh my gosh, there's so many things I didn't even see. Namely, the greatness of God and the holiness of God and the independence of God and the omniscience of God and the infinite of God and the omnipresence of God. Friends, your life will be well served in your pursuit of humility if you just spend more time looking at God. Spend less time watching the news and more time looking at God. You will be well served. So books of the Bible like Exodus and Isaiah and Job and the Psalms, just books that are going to help you zoom out and realize you are massive. I think you've got this. And I don't think we have. But you have. And then other books like Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem, who's got a wonderful section in there on the attributes of God and also Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Anything you can do to behold the majesty and splendor and greatness of God, it will help you zoom out and then zoom into your true size. Also, the human sinfulness. Look at who you really are before the Lord. You know, sometimes people can be really reluctant to do that because they think, oh, I'm just going to be so depressed. Um, not if you're gazing at the cross, you won't be. You will actually realize who you really are and the cross will become way bigger in your eyes than you did before because you realize anything that you discover, he died for. Grace becomes more amazing, but we also have a far bigger reality of who we really are outside of grace that has an incredibly humbling effect on our lives. And so books like Broken Down House by Paul Tripp and The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard, both of those books I read many years ago and just had a huge effect on my life of even understanding what sin is. See, if you're not truly aware of how sinful you are, the cross will never dazzle you. Because you'll just think, yeah, I think, I think he died because I think I lied once in fifth grade. and um, Yeah, thanks. But when you actually become aware of, you know, I think the reason why Paul is so amazed by grace because he actually says, you know, we're all sinners of which I'm the worst. I think that's what he felt. And that's why when he gazed at Calvary, he's like, this is amazing. Because he knew what he had been forgiven of. Study your sinfulness. It's not a morbid thing at all. It's actually an incredibly releasing thing and a humbling thing. And an amazing thing is you see what Jesus has really done for you. And then also study the cross. The cross. John Stott says it this way. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt that I am paying, and your death that I am dying. Nothing in history then, or the universe, cuts us to down to size like the cross. 
For all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. It's so helpful. No one emerges from gazing at Calvary and then turns around and goes, Riley, why am I not being asked to preach? I can't understand it. I'm really good. No one's even thinking that. Because you're just like, you know what? It's amazing that I'm even here. It's, it's amazing that I'm even allowed to be in the same room as you. Because I shouldn't be. You shrink down to your true size when you spend your life around Calvary. It's not like then you put on humility. Humility is what you feel. Because you're amazed. You are holy. And I am not. And yet you died for me. I'm amazed I even get to be a part. You know, as Christians, we should be people that are walking through that entrance, shaking our head that we get to do this at all. Amazed. Not amazed by the part we play, but amazed that we're a part. Amazed. My friends, study the cross. So spend time in the Gospels and the letters. The Cries of Calvary by Edward Lutzer is a wonderful book that just helps you focus in on what Jesus said on the cross. Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, which I saw in your bookstore this morning. Get that if you've never read that. My goodness, get that and digest it. And then The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Just books. Constantly have books on the go that will help you to shrink down to your true size. And then number three, do all you can to pull other believers into your life. All you can to pull other Christians into your life. My friends, this is important. See, one of the greatest challenges, I think, of pride is that it proudly deceives us into thinking that we can see everything in our lives with 20-20 vision. We have such a high estimation on our abilities. Such a high estimation on, our, on the way we view things. And so we're quite happy to get sin out of somebody else's eye, but we don't see the log that's smacking them in the face every few seconds. But we think we do. We think we're fine. We think we see it all fine. We make major decisions in our lives and don't even dream about asking a soul about it. Why? Because I think I'm fine. I can see my life perfectly. I have 20-20 vision. Even though the Bible tells us your heart is deceitful above all things, we look on and go, I don't think mine is. Mine's really good. It's a bit like my grandma. She's so nice. And I just, I love the Lord and I love his word. We should be sweet. I just make decisions all by myself. Listen, this is what the Bible says about that. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of the fool seems right to him. You don't hear that in Sydney very much, do you? We are trained from a young age that the epitome of all adulthood is to be totally independent. Make your own decisions. You can be whatever you want to be. Well, this is God addressing us. No, no, that isn't a wise way. The way of the fool seems right to him. And then he says, but a wise man listens to advice. All the way through the Proverbs, there is a theme that you have not got it all together. I have not got it all together. And so welcome to family. That's why he puts others in our lives to help us, to help us see ourselves. 
And so in Proverbs 1 verse 5, we read, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11 verse 14, for lack of guidance, a nation falls, but with many advisors make victory sure. Proverbs 13 verse 10, wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 15 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Do you see the theme? They're just a sort of handful sampling of all the times it mentions this in the proverb. You want to be truly wise? You want to be an object, not of his discipline, but an object of his favor and grace and mercy? Get advice. And yet sometimes in Sydney, it seems to be the last thing that we think about doing. Why? Because I got this. That doesn't seem to be going too well for us, does it? My friends, I really want to encourage you as a local church, when it comes then to your walk with the Lord, get other eyes on it. Where do you think I need to grow? Would there be any area of my life where you see cream cheese on my face? Where do you think I need to put off and put on? I'm not sure. And when it comes to decision making, don't go all independent. The way of the fool seems right to him. And yet the wise man listens to advice. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is this. Hey, um, I'm thinking about getting married. What do you think? That seems to be the last question people ask. I suggest it should be the first. Hey, guys, I'm about to make the biggest decision of my life. What do you reckon? What things should I be thinking about? What things should I be looking for? I don't know. Hey, guys, I'm about to buy a house. And listen, it's a great house. A million is an hour and a half away. But, you know, it's a great house. What do you think? My heart can be deceitful above all things. I don't think it's materialism. I think I'm sweet. But help me understand. What harm is it going to be done? You may disagree with them. Or you may think, oh, thank the Lord I asked the question. Because I was about to make a massive decision that would have massive implications in my life. Thank you for helping me. Or... I'm thinking about getting a new job. It looks great. It's going to be like 70 hours a week, so I probably can't go to group or serve in the church anymore, but I'll just do it for three years. I'll just do it for three years. I'll earn lots of money. I'll probably give really well to the church in that time. And after that three years, I'll probably be sweet. I'll really come back and throw myself in. Okay. What do you think? Well, I kind of think that maybe you won't be the same person in three years that you are today. And that time level won't happen like that. And just maybe you won't even make it beyond there. Pleased I ask. My friends, one of the things I've found in Australia in the last 10 years I've been here is we're really happy to talk about tiny things. Like, hey, how do you think I could be doing quiet times better? Or, you know, little things. But major decisions, tumbleweed. And then pastors like me get a text from people in the church saying, hey, just to let you know, we're, we're moving to the Gold Coast like next week. But thanks for everything. And you think, you never even asked a soul. What a shame. And so you entrust them to the Lord, but you think, oh Lord, I hope this move isn't your discipline. I hope it's your favor. My friends, we need to learn. We need others in our lives. And when we ask questions of others, not only do we receive good godly counsel that can help us, but we also help to weaken pride in our lives and pursue humility. Asking questions of others is humble. And time and time again, what I've discovered in my life is God 
blesses that. And you realize the very thing I was about to do was stupid. Thank you. And at other times you realize the very thing I was about to do is a good thing and it's just confirmatory. And then when it doesn't go so well, you think, well, at least I asked for counsel and I believe God was in it. it it's good. And God blesses what we do. My friends, this is the one to whom he will look. It is the promise and prize of Isaiah 66, the assistance and favor and grace of God. And what is it that draws that special attention? It is humility. And so may humility be a theme of Sovereign Grace Church, Parramatta. May people encounter you like I encountered that church in 1997. And had my life completely changed as a result. And may they go away from you, shaking their head, going, man, they're a humble people. It's attractive. And may the grace of God abound to you in it. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank, thank you for the way you speak to us. Lord, I'm humbled afresh as I stand by your word today just how kind you are to us. You don't just save us and then put us on a horse and off we go by ourselves. You, you bring us into family and you give us your word, your guide. Lord, did you increasingly teach us what it means to tremble at it, to sit under your word, understanding that you are addressing us. And Lord, may we apply what we see and as we do, May all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.